Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we'll be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We'll be delving into and analysing the latest news around tech, geopolitics, finance, economics, entrepreneurship, leadership, global business, property law, philanthropy, and of course, life. And this podcast is available on all platforms, but for those of you who prefer to watch, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. And you can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And please, if you have time, leave a review. It all helps in getting the word out. Uh, my name is Ninda Johar. I'm the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Award, and co-publisher of the Business Influencer Magazine. And I'll be your host for the show. In this episode, I speak to Greg Clark, MP, Conservative MP for Tonbridge Wells, who was Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy from 2016 to 2019. As someone who was the architect of the industrial strategy, I asked Greg, how does he feel about it being dismantled, his thoughts on levelling up the regions, the importance of energy, electric cars, manufacturing skills, small business, significance of place and finally the role of the UK in a post-Covid and post-Brexit world. Uh, so let's pop over and have a listen to what Greg Clark, MP, has to say about the UK economy. Good afternoon, Greg. Good afternoon, Linda. Very good to to see you as well as uh, hear you. Yeah, well, listen, it's 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 been a while since we met, um, and we'll go through how we met. Um, uh, but obviously, thank you very much for sparing the time. Um, Great pleasure. Uh, we're in unprecedented times, we've heard. So it'll be interesting to get your take on where we are today and what does tomorrow look like. So now, what I've never done, Greg since I've known you during my time at the local enterprise partnership, I was, as you know, as a board member, I've just stepped down. Absolutely. And you, and you were one of the architects uh, in helping the black country particularly really prosper well and, and get on its way. So thank you for that. But what I've never asked you during that time is, um, how did you get into politics? <laughs> so, um, so, so tell me a bit about how you ended up sitting in front of us at the black country lab. By the way, for those who don't know, the Black Country Lab is the uh, Black Country Local Enterprise Partnership, which was set up by the government, Conservative government, to make sure that all the stakeholders, private and public, got together and did what was right for the region. And we'll chat about your involvement. So how did you get in, Greg, into politics? Well, it's a, um, it's a long time ago now, but I, I was born and bred in, uh, in the northeast of England, in Middlesbrough. And um, my... Come from a small business background. My dad was a milkman, um, and uh, and so growing up, um, and this was an area that was very sort of traditional. It had some similarities with the black country in the sense that you know a lot of the the industries in which which had driven its prosperity, um, some of them had disappeared. Some of them were going through challenges. And so when I was a kid in the, the 1980s, it was quite a tough time. Unemployment was very high. I went to the local comprehensive school and um, you know, a lot of my 
friends' dads were unemployed at that time, and it was quite tough. Um, and one of the things that struck me at the time was that in a at a time and a place where I thought education was really important in equipping people with the you know, the knowledge and skills to be able to to get jobs that would help them, given that there weren't so many around uh, locally. Um, it was very uncommon to even go into the sixth form, uh, let alone university. Now we've got a division bell. Um, I don't know whether you can hear me okay or whether they really support. That's fine, but... listen, carry on. Actually, okay, well, I'm in the House of Commons. As, uh, as it gives tell. it a nice taste. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so one of the uh, one of the things that um, got me thinking was, you know, most people left school at 16. Yeah. And they weren't going into jobs at 16. They were often yeah. going straight into unemployment. And I thought, yeah, this is crazy. We should be shaking this up. And because this was an area that you know, was labour dominated, I thought there was a kind of complacency there that they hadn't really spotted that there were lots of kids, you know, like me and people in my in my class that you know, should be given more opportunities and perhaps given a bit more pressure to to stay on. Uh, in education, to do A levels, and perhaps to get to university, as uh, as I did, and that is that is essentially a political thought. It was a kind of critique of the, the what I thought was you know a degree of complacency that was there, wanting to do something about it, um, and so that wet my appetite. So I became involved uh, in politics when I went to university. Um, I became politically involved there first. First of all, with the with the SDP, which you might uh, uh, recall at the time was a um, was a new uh, party uh, that was established in the in the early nineteen eighties. Um, but then that didn't last very long, and by the time the SDP disappeared, I could recognise that what motivated me and where I felt most at home was in the Conservative Party. And, 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 and before we move on, how did those who saw you grow up in a largely Labour area, how did they react to you being on the other side? Well, um, if I say you know, staying on into the sixth form and going to university was still was comparatively unusual, um, then getting involved in politics was, was even more unusual. And so um, uh, I think they thought this was, um, was a bit eccentric, <laughs> a bit, uh, you know, uh, most other people were probably playing football on the uh, at the weekends rather than delivering leaflets and uh, knocking on doors. Um, but I had a bit of practice um, uh, in that aspect of it because I said my dad was a milkman, and so yeah. all through my you know mid-teens, Thursday and Friday night, I was literally knocking on doors asking for the milk money, doing the collected round as, mm -hmm. uh, as we call it. And that's actually pretty good training for for politics, uh, Ninde, because you're you can't just knock on the door and demand the money, you have to have a little chat with them and you kind of find out what's on people's minds. And and so you get used to talking to people and I enjoyed doing that. And so um, so I had a bit of training for that as well. Wow, fascinating. I absolutely no idea. So now I understand the route into, into politics. And then of course, you came into the black country as you did with other parts of the country. Uh, but putting something called an industrial strategy together. So, so, so tell me, um, what was the industrial strategy? What was its purpose? 
and, and, and was it flawed maybe from the start or and, and, and as a result it was never going to go anywhere or has it now been a mistake uh, I don't know what people say in our part of the neck of the woods it's a mistake but perhaps you could start with the rationale behind the industrial strategy um, yeah absolutely so it's a pretty simple um, uh, rationale it's that you know for any anyone that works in a company uh, viewing this uh, it seems to me that any organization should be looking to the future and seeing how they can not just survive but they can prosper in that future things are changing probably uh, in technology things are changing at a more rapid pace than perhaps since the the first industrial revolution in which the black country was uh, was prominent uh, and so to look ahead reflect on what your strengths are, map them against where demand is going to be, what are the sort of products and goods and services that people are going to want in the future, see whether you're in a position to provide them, see what you need to do in terms of investing in your capabilities, whether that's in skills or whether it's in uh, research and development uh, or whether it's in, in facilities. Make sure that you're equipped for that. That seems a sensible step to take uh, and what i i think about it in this way you know if you were a, if you were the uh, a shareholder uh, the annual general meeting of a company and it came to kind of questions to the board uh, and someone asked a question said you know, what's the what's the strategy for the future um and if the chairman or the chief executive said well we don't know really we thought we'd just kind of play it by ear um see how things go i don't think anyone would be very impressed and i don't think they should be very impressed if we if the prime minister or the business secretary or the chancellor uh, had to say that. So I think having a view of the future and looking to know what you need to, to do to be able to prosper and to make the most of your talents and your assets uh, is something that I think all governments uh, should do. Uh, and so I think it was, was and is the right thing to do. Sometimes these are called different things and it doesn't need to have the... Uh, the the words industrial strategy on it as long as you know people are doing addressing the content which is to prepare well for the future uh, that is fine but a big part of that was the uh, the, the local and the regional uh, strategies uh, uh, as well because my view and you wouldn't be surprised to hear this from someone that's born and bred in Middlesbrough um, your place matters and every place is different um, and prosperity doesn't happen in the abstract you know you might have the the numbers in the in the chancellor's budget every year but every one of those numbers the uh, the contribution to national income uh, the people employed they happen in real places not not in the ether and and so just as you should try and make the country as good a place as possible for business and for enterprise and for people to be successful. So I think you should do that locally as well. And so the work that we did in the black country, and I was very uh, enormously grateful for your service uh, in doing that. The only people that can really give that lead are people like you, Ninda, who are local, who know the place inside out. And so a part of a national industrial strategy is very much to have a big place for, uh, for local areas. So, uh, listen, I think that makes eminent sense. So the word industrial strategy has now disappeared. So, so, so what do you think it's been replaced by? Because 
and obviously those on the right wing of politics will say, well, actually, government should retrench. Uh, government should let people just get on with it, get businesses on, get on with it. Um, so, so in that respect, it was quite innovative to come up with the business industrial strategy because they hold wasn't one for a while. So, so if it's been if it hasn't been dropped, what is it called now so that people can still identify an industrial strategy? Uh, because what one of the things I know about you, Greg, was you were very visible. You were very visible, mm. and, and and certainly in the black country, you were popping over so many times. And it, and it was apparent that there was definitely a strategy in place because you were leading it from the front. And so, and it was honestly, it really was very visible. Another lep area said the same. So it wasn't just us. So it was obvious there was a strategy because you were leading it. Now, mm. if there is one now, what does it look like and, and who's leading it? Well, uh, it's kind of you to say what you, you said. And I, I love coming to the black country and love coming to the West Midlands. I once worked it out during the three years that I was the Secretary of State for Business, uh, I was in the West Midlands uh, on average every three weeks during that whole three three years. And I was in the black country a lot. And and that was because that's where things happen. You you know, it's no point, no point sort of staying in Whitehall and just you know, reading, you know, reading briefs and papers about what's going on. You want to see for yourself and you want to sit down, as we did uh, many times, uh, with you know, local business and civic leaders and university leaders to uh, to work together. Uh, so that was very much my uh, approach. Um, and I think this this idea that you know government should just be completely absent and not participate and just leave it to businesses um, to you know to sink or swim uh, as it were. Now obviously as a conservative I and coming from a small business background, I believe in competition and, uh, and business needs to have that. But if you think about some of the, the ways in which we have and will prosper, um, a lot of it comes from scientific research, uh, for example, um, spin-outs from universities. Um, they uh, tend to be, in every country in the world, including you know, such capitalist economies as America, a lot of public funds go into universities. So it makes sense to coordinate that with business, it seems to me. You know, things like transport. I mean, in the West Midlands and the Black Country in particular, you, know, you need to be connected in order to prosper. Uh, and it's, it's usually the government that makes decisions about roads uh, and all the rest of things. So, so I think the government should be active and visible and prominent and know really well all of the people in all of the areas and work together on a on a joint plan. So you, you ask what's replaced the industrial strategy. I mean, as I sort of implied in my previous answer, uh, it may not be called the industrial strategy, mm. but I hope that the the kind of the, the fundamentals are there. And actually I think they are. So one part of the industrial strategy was to invest more in research and development, because it seems to be just as in the Industrial Revolution, it's kind of discovery and invention and innovation and the application of new innovations that are going to help us prosper. Well, actually, the government's made a big commitment to that. Uh, the, uh, the, the science budget, the, the government science budget, is going to double during the course of this parliament. Enormous, the biggest increase we've ever had. Uh, I very much hope, um, and uh, you and I both 
uh, know Andy Street uh, very well. We worked with him as uh, the mayor of the West Midlands. That that focus on place will continue. In fact, um, the, the government calls it levelling up, but it's the same analysis of the industrial strategy is to make sure that those places uh, that have been uh, behind some of the others but have great potential realise that potential. So, so the elements uh, are there. There's a thing called the Plan for Growth that was uh, published at the same time as the budget. The, the government was uh, elected only you know, a couple of months before COVID uh, hit. So I think it's not surprising that the, the spotlight that I and Theresa May and others were, in, uh, were able to kind of shine on industrial strategy, I can understand why that hasn't been possible. And in terms of coming to, to visits, it's literally been impossible for ministers to, to get out and about the way that I did. But I hope now, now we're coming out of COVID that there will be that real energy and visible commitment uh, to making making industrial strategy work, whatever they choose to call it. Well, if the if the new if the new people in the business want to do even half of what you do, they'll have done well because uh, you were very visible. Um, so, picking up the importance of place and the importance of uh, leveling up, I'm just going to read out a. Uh, a quote um, uh, from the CEO of the Black Country Museum. And he said, um, is the pandemic and the government's ambition to level up making place-based development more enticing and the way to go? And I know you've talked about that. I, I, I'm the chair of the Wolverhampton Towns Fund and we just received 25 million pounds. And, and we're looking now for the leveling up fund uh, uh, as well. Um, so you, you've, you've said brilliantly that place is important. All of this sort of emphasizes that. But what else can we do? What more can we do to rebalance the economy and to make leveling up even more tangible than this, these sort of pockets of money? And, and by the way, uh, uh, thank you to the government for supporting the visitor economy, uh, uh, certainly the museum in the black country. They use it quite a bit. Under the Hippodrome in Birmingham, and I know various other places as well. So, so thanks for that. But so what more can we do to rebalance the economy? Well, I think we can do a lot more. But the, the first uh, thing is, uh, as you say, to, to observe that it is a very important message and theme of this government. And actually, uh, again, I look back quite proudly on the fact that the, uh, the, the town deals, the first town deal was, uh, was in the industrial strategy. We, in fact, um, we launched the idea of deals. It started with city deals um, and growth deals that created the uh, the West Midlands mayoralty. And I was very keen that, that they should apply to towns as well. And I got enormous resistance from this in Whitehall at the time. And I included a commitment to town deals in the industrial strategy right at the last minute. In fact, the I inserted it into the, the proofs of the printer because the Treasury wouldn't let me mention it, but I managed to insert a reference to a, a pilot town deal to be negotiated with Grimsby. Um, and knowing full well that once you've done that, then there'd be no stopping it. And I'm, um, <laughs> I'm delighted that it's uh, extended uh, right across the country now. Um, what do you need to do? I mean, local leadership uh, is the, the most important thing uh, in, in my view. The old style, which was literally the case that, you know, people in 
departments in central London would be deciding about, you know, kind of road junctions in Wolverhampton and Dudley when you know, sometimes the, the officials, no criticism of them, had never been there before. Those sort of decisions should be taken by people who know inside out and, and know that, you know, if, if only you kind of solve this bottleneck, then actually this piece of land could come into play and it would make a brilliant, you know, manufacturing facility and it would link into uh, to this cluster of other manufacturers. You need that local knowledge. Uh, and so I'm unashamed in wanting to push further the, the devolution agenda and have more decisions taken uh, taken locally. Uh, I think the, the research and uh, innovation and science agenda is also very important because we are a very centralised uh, country, centralised actually not on the centre of England where uh, the black country uh, broadly is, but on, the, on a corner of the country, on the southeast uh, corner. And you know, in my view, we should, uh, we should try to be to recognise the opportunities that there are elsewhere. And in, in research and development, if you take universities, for example, actually most of our universities are outside the, the southeast. And in all of our great cities and regions, you've got really strong universities that are, and, uh, and you know this through the left, big parts of the leadership of their local economy. So that's a, a good and important way of doing it. Now, in the... Um... In the industrial strategy, which was well put together, it talked about partnerships a lot. Yeah. And and and, and, and with the new town deals and the levelling up, I couldn't quite grip onto the partnership. Where's the partnership element there? Because it seems to be that it's uh, always just going to the council or, or the leparians and get on with it. Whereas before, there was always an element in the industrial strategy. We were very, very cleverly put together. You talk about partnerships all the time and collaboration and and scale, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I missed it. So is, is that right? No, I think that is right. And the the, the industrial strategy was put together in partnership. Um, yeah, we spent a year taking it around yeah. the country. I did um, right. round tables. Uh, we did them right across the uh, the West Midlands, including in the in the Black Country. And you and others through the Leps and others helped shape it. So it was a product of partnership. Yeah. Um, and. I think that's the way of the world, especially in business. I mean, you know, you, you know personally, and um, probably most of your viewers will know, that in business these days, you're involved in partnerships with your suppliers, um, with your customers. Uh, often, you know, if you take retail, for example, if you're kind of Marks and Spencer or Sainsbury's or Tesco or, or whatever, yeah, you've literally got people working in your suppliers um, on quality and processes the idea that you just kind of sort of buy in a kind of in a kind of marketplace without any idea of where your suppliers are coming from is the old world. There's everyone works together, and it seems to me that we should do it in in this way. And the government should work together with councils, with local enterprise partnerships, with business groups, business organisations, chambers of commerce. Um, that's what we uh, should do, and I hope I hope that will be the case. In, in, in terms of the West Midlands and, and looking forward, and, and certainly the rest of the country, uh, the Americans, Tesla, have, have sort of led the way with, with sort of battery and electric. And, um, and, and of course, JLR just recently 
said, yes, we're going electric as well. Um, so a couple of things. Are we now playing catch-up? And, and, and if we're playing catch-up, how can the government help? Are we ready? The government's hit a target of 2030 to see the end of what we call the internal combustion engine. Yeah. And, and, and you do sit in, you wonder, well, crikey, that's only, what, nine years away. So are we ready? What can the government do? Do we have the infrastructure actually in place to even do it? Because there's a lot, lot to do before we can completely get rid of the engine. Mm. So, and, 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 you know, where are these bits going to come from? So, so really, what role can government play? Because it's, it's, it's set that deadline, isn't it, 2030? Yeah. And, and, and it looks, looks very tight to me. So how can, how can government ensure that that happens, in terms, certainly in terms of infrastructure? How can we get there? Because otherwise, it just looks a bit daunting to me. So I agree with you, Didier. It's a, it's a big challenge that yep. um, you know, we need to join forces in, and the government has a big role to, to play in that. I think it's the right uh, challenge. Uh, again, when we when we wrote the industrial strategy, one of the big investments was into what we call the Faraday uh, challenge, which was to make Britain a leading centre for the development of new battery technology. Because we, um, it seemed to be uh, not a gamble, but a kind of certainty that that was going to be important in the future. Um, and so, both in the in the research and in the, the pure scientific research, but also in manufacturing technology. And we've got in um, uh, by Coventry at the um, Warwick University, uh, there's a battery industrialization center that is there to show how you can manufacture batteries. And then of course, all of the, uh, the, the motor companies that we've got and the, their suppliers, components, manufacturers need to be geared uh, to for this transition, so I think the I think the government should be partners in that, and you know we are through the Faraday Challenge helping advance prototyping and research. But you're absolutely right; there needs to be the infrastructure to support it, and we do need to I think accelerate the the charging point network that we have around the country, and that has to be done in advance of 2030 because it's a bit of a chicken and egg. I mean, a lot of people. Yeah won't buy an electric vehicle if they think that there aren't enough charging points to be able to reliably charge it. So you want to give people the confidence that, yeah, if I if I buy an electric vehicle, there's no problem at all charging it because the government's put in uh, put on in these uh, charging points or partnered with others in putting in the charging points. So I think that needs to be a big consequence of having committed to this 2030 decision to roll out, to phase out uh, internal combustion engines. I think arising from that is a need to invest in the, the network. Yeah, I think also at the moment, I think most of these cars are quite expensive. So, so we're hoping by the time 2030 comes, they'll be similar to what internal combustion engine. But you're right. Uh, That's true. <laughs> they, I mean, as you know, Ninja, they, they tend to come down. They, they, they obviously, yeah. they started off niche, they're expanding. And yeah. when you go from small production to, to volume manufacturing, then costs come come down, and and that I think is something we can look forward to. And the running costs are, uh, are much cheaper than yeah. uh, petrol and diesel vehicles. So a couple of things in terms of manufacturing. Yeah. Do you think by twenty thirty we'll be self reliant rather than relying on imports? Will we have battery power factories here churning them out? Because I mean that's going to be also a big challenge. I mean, and we learned that with COVID. You know, yeah. Relying on overseas supplies, then it's um, 
it's very difficult. Well, up to a point, uh, Ninda, I don't think we should be, be I, I don't think we should aspire to complete self-reliance in things because if every country did that, we'd have no export market. And, um, and uh, as you and I know, the slogan of the, the black country left is uh, made in the black country sold around the world. And I, yeah, I yeah. want the black country's products to be sold around the world for, for many years to come. So I believe in trade. I think we all do better from trade. So I wouldn't want to, you know, put up the shutters uh, against import and export. Uh, and actually, the, the, the vaccines are a case in point. I think, I think we need to have resilience. And we need to make sure that if you have disruptions, you know, we're not completely sunk by that. And in vaccine manufacturing, we didn't have enough domestic capacity. But a lot of it is international. I mean, the, um, the different, uh, many of the different components, if I can put it that way, of the vaccines come from different countries uh, across the world. Um, and that's always going to be, that's going to be the case in, it seems to be, most products Things are complex and you'll get specialist producers. And as long as you've got a diversity of it, then I think we should be open to the, to the world. And as I say, looking to export many of our components uh, to, to the world. Well, staying on that theme uh, around manufacturing, um, as you know, the West Midlands, uh, uh, you know, it, its manufacturing base got wiped out during the 90s. Uh, there are some people saying, well, that was market economies and Thatcher was right to do what she did. Other people said, no, 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 you know, we, we shouldn't, the whole region shouldn't have disappeared up the north. You know, they, they sort of got abandoned. Um, and, and of course, in the black country and those areas uh, where manufacturing was key, losing the manufacturing advisory service was quite, quite critical. Mm. Um, but, but look, going forward then, um, and, and, and I don't know Biden's coming in a lot more conciliatory now. Uh, you saw the worst of the worst during COVID because everybody shut up their borders and people became very nationalistic. And then we had we had the rumpus with the EU because they said, you can't have export, the whole of that kerfuffle. And, and of course, people then, and, and of course, we were all, not just us, the whole world was suspended when the ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. And, and, and you suddenly saw People saying, well, globalization, maybe not quite there. Um, do, do you think we should be, I mean, back to the sort of industrial strategy type of thing, mm -hmm. do, do you think we should be placing more emphasis on encouraging a manufacturing base, notwithstanding what you said about import-export, yeah. but, you know, there were a lot of lessons we learned about having to rely on other people. No, I do agree that we should have a big focus on manufacturing. And, uh, and although you're right, and obviously you as a local experienced this directly there was a big contraction of manufacturing in the 1990s it, it wasn't total and some of the uh, some of the the groups and companies that survived that jlr being an obvious uh, example mm. uh, have now been hugely important for the whole country uh, as a result and you know i've visited uh, the privilege of visiting countless manufacturing firms across the black country and across the the west midlands um, that either have continued some of them many years old and many new startups and so i think that manufacturing tradition uh, i hope will be revived i think there is a recognition now that it is very important let me give you an example the um, we all are going to rely more are relying more on on gps 
whether it's on our phones for yeah. uh, on maps or kind of controlling devices, monitoring crops in Africa and all the rest of things. Globally, um, we're using uh, satellites more. Satellites have to be manufactured. Um, and we are pretty good in this country at manufacturing satellites, especially small satellites. And a lot of the, uh, the aerospace skills that we have, not least in the West Midlands, um, there's a ready and booming market for, uh, for satellites. So I'm very optimistic um, uh, for manufacturing. I don't think we'll be in a, in a kind of post-manufacturing world. In fact, I think there'll be a revival for reasons of resilience, but also of innovation. I think some of these jobs that went overseas are starting to come back and we should be there, especially working in conjunction with universities and colleges and research institutions uh, to expand that. So I, uh, I hope we'll do that. And I think we should very explicitly have a pro-manufacturing uh, strategy. Uh, just, just an observation and completely out of your remit, but I'm going to make the observation. Mm. It's around skills and education. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and you do feel sometimes that the education system hasn't caught up with this real world that you've been speaking about, the technology side and, and the personal skills and everything. And, 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 and I think, and, and again, I'm not saying it's you're, you're talking on the other side of the screen. Whilst it was easy to talk to people like you, the business department was a lot more open. The experience we find is the education department is pretty enclosed and never really reached that. And, and, and I'm sure there's a great job with schools, but never quite connected with business. And I think that's an area we do need to explore. Uh, business will tell you across the country that the education is not quite what we're looking for in terms of new skills for the future. Well, that's an, uh, that's an important reflection of strategy as well. So I, we, we talked about one aspect yep. of strategy, which is thinking about the future and preparing for it. You know, as you know, anyone working in, in business will know that there's another sense of strategy, which is bringing all the strands together so that they, you know, you kind of, um, you're, you've, got, you've got a stronger, stronger cord uh, as a result. And sometimes it is the case that different policies pull literally in different directions. Um, and you're absolutely right that education has to, to reinforce and to support the opportunities that are there. And, you know, we are undergoing a huge technological revolution at the moment, uh, and education needs to, to keep pace with that, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, just looking at COP26 coming up in, in November, and again, we're talking about manufacturing and energy. Um, and, and of course, there's much discussion around carbon and carbon neutral and, and, and how the UK is leading the way and wants to show the world that you know, we're really into making sure the energy is right. Uh, but of course, it's a bit difficult to get that message across when, uh, notwithstanding what Biden said very recently, um, China and India are certainly still uh, polluters. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I remember I looked at the stat, I think in terms of pollution, what about 17th down the table? So, you know, we're doing a good job already. Yeah. And, 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 and whilst 16 countries above us are polluting like crazy, and if we continue on that track of leading the way, then some of our businesses are going to be at a competitive 
disadvantage because we're putting all these things into place, which is all costing money. So I'm just wondering what, what can we do and are we right to be, you know, really being on the front foot um, because we're worried about carbon. I mean, um, uh, Crow Whitehill are a, a fantastic firm just around the corner and they're a managing partner for the, for the Midlands. Jonathan Dudley said, um, are we better mining coal and other raw materials rather than buying in from other countries just so that we have to reduce carbon? So, you know, there, there is a balance. You almost get the impression other people are sort of, I wouldn't say ignoring it, but they're not going as strong as the UK. And is that a worry because it is placing us at a competitive disadvantage? Well, you know, I should, um, uh, I should disclose that I, one of my last acts as the business secretary was to bring in the legislation um, that uh, committed us to net zero. Um, okay. And so, so I'm strongly supportive of it. Uh, and one of the reasons is, uh, is this, Nida, that, that actually I think you've got to look at it in a kind of dynamic way. And you mentioned two countries, big countries, China and the United States uh, and their record. Actually, just in the last few years, you're seeing a, a big change there. So China, for whatever reason, has decided to change its position and now wants to be very, very front foot when it comes to green technologies and reducing emissions. In fact, in terms of uh, electric vehicles, China is now one of the, not just the big markets, but big competitive threats there. Um, so we uh, so we don't want to be left behind uh, uh, in that sense. Um, and, and in America, obviously, um, Trump took America out of the Paris Agreement. Biden has put them very strongly in. So I get a sense that the, the world is moving very strongly in that direction. Uh, and there will be uh, important economic opportunities as well. Take offshore winds, for example. You know, we, we backed offshore winds quite early on, uh, and now we're the world leader in offshore wind, and it's creating lots of jobs. When I was Secretary of State, I had the, the pleasure and the honour of opening the Siemens wind turbine factory in Hull on the banks of the, uh, of the Humber River there employing you know, over a thousand people in highly skilled jobs um, and exporting to, to the rest of the world. So I think there will be opportunities there, there will be in, in batteries and uh, electric vehicles. But if we don't act on it, and, uh, and if, we, if we sort of act as kind of King Canute and, and think that the, you know, the tide's not going to come in, then I think we risk being inundated and drowned um, and better to, uh, to strike out strongly in the direction that the world is going. Again, this comes back to strategy, thinking about the future. And it seems to me that the future is going to be more green rather than uh, more polluting uh, in the future. And so best to prepare to be, to be one of the people that benefits uh, from manufacturing and uh, and servicing those new technologies. So looking, taking that as sort of going forward and, and it was, we've talked about now batteries looking forward. We've talked about carbon zero looking forward. Uh, now let's, now let's look at um, trade and sort of global trade. 
and vis-a-vis the UK. So let's look let's look at where we are now before we sort of look at what tomorrow looks like. Yeah. There's a patchy start to COVID. The government seemed, I think like most of the world, wasn't quite sure how to cope with this. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll know whether mistakes were made or not. But the reality is it's been a brilliant vaccine rollout. Absolutely brilliant vaccine rollout. Um, you know, the rates of uh, infections is down, hospitalization is down, deaths is down. Um, and of course, amongst all this, we had Brexit. Uh, we've seen issues at the borders, big issues at the borders, particularly in January, where uh, supply, there were real big supply problems are. We've seen the advantage of not being part of the EU because not being part of the medical agency meant we can move very quickly on vaccines, whereas I think um, the EU was sort of sort of behind. So it's a mixed picture, good mm-hmm. bits, bad bits. So now looking forward, particularly as hopefully the roadmap now becomes even more crystal clear and as we sort of start to return to normality, what does global Britain mean and where does post-Brexit leave the UK in terms of our position now in the world? Well, very good and important questions, Ninder. Uh, and, and in terms of your analysis of the you know, where we've got to, I think I broadly agree with that. I think it was quite difficult at first for any country to know what to do. And every country is different. We're so internationally connected, and that's a good thing, that you know, some people say, well, you know, New Zealand did better, nothing against New Zealand, but it's a very different type of country and economy, you know, a long way from uh, from most places than a country that is literally a crossing point of the, the world. Um, but I do think some important strategic decisions were made, such as producing and ordering at-risk um, yeah. multiple versions of vaccines. So I mean, very interesting case study of industrial strategy, actually, to kind of you know, prepare for the future, not put all your eggs in one basket, lean in, government working with universities, uh, with pharmaceutical companies uh, and others. So lots of lessons uh, from that. Um, I, I hope and expect that we're going to come out of it and come out of it uh, strongly. And because COVID followed pretty hard on the heels of the uh, uh, of Brexit, at least in terms of having the the, uh, the free trade agreement, the trade and cooperation agreement. Now is the chance to to act on it. It seems to me, and just as you pointed out, there's no point leaving the, the EU and then doing everything identically to what you did when you were in it. Um, we have to make use of these powers. We can talking about a partnership with industries and companies. We can be much more agile in in our investments in scientific research, for example. There used to be, and I, I was the minister that had to deal with it, a huge bureaucracy. If you wanted to put money even into universities that were partnering with businesses for some research development, you had to fill in forms, you had to notify it to the commission, the European Commission. Sometimes they said no, sometimes they wanted the money to be repaid. Now it gives us the, the ability to, across these very exciting areas, to be really kind of bust the bureaucracy to, to be very agile and more fleet of foot than you know, a big organisation with 26 member states like the European Union. 
uh, can be. Uh, so we should do that. Uh, trade agreements. Um, uh, you know, I'm pleased that we've got a trade agreement with the European Union because that's our biggest um, market. Um, but we should now have trade agreements with others and we should be uh, proactively looking for opportunities to export around the world. And still exercising world leadership. And, uh, and you will know, uh, and your colleagues in the black country will know that in manufacturing, sometimes standards are very important. The, you know, the specification of products, and often there are global standards. And that's something that we have historically been and are very good at. And so I hope we will we'll be very out there and proactive in helping take our expertise to shape international standards, which then can create opportunities uh, for, uh, for Britain. So I think we need to be vigorous. I think we need to be confident. I think we need to be agile. We need to be entrepreneurial and look for opportunities and, and go after them and have a real sense of energy to make the most uh, of the new freedoms that we've got. Well, what do you think, honestly, is our likelihood of getting a deal with the US um, is, is, is that likely? I know, I know there's patches of treaties being done, but, you know, business will say to me, we still fear about prices. Um, we still fear that things haven't been really cottoned down yet. And there's a few more surprises to come. And, and you know, Biden's in and, you know, are we important enough? And, and in fact, now that we're on our own, do we have a real voice? It's within within the world now and are we a, a smaller nation and of course people in pharmaceuticals were worried about the science side and working together so what, what do you think I mean does that does the, does the thing the American thing I mean we we're, we're looking to try and get into America with our magazine yeah. and, and and you know so I'm just anticipating the complications of trying to do deals with America and so obviously deals with big companies uh, with big countries, I should say, uh, are always going to be challenging because there's so many different aspects uh, uh, to them. You know, there's agriculture, for example, that has to be included in a deal um, that you know, involves manufactured goods and um, services as, as well. So, um, uh, so I'm sure it'll be it'll be hard. But everything I pick up you know, sitting here in Parliament from colleagues in government is that there's very good will from the United States towards us. And actually this, as you sort of implied, can have a dividend before a very comprehensive trade agreement. So for example, uh, not as much manufactured in the black country, but Scotch whiskey um, is something that there were tariffs against and actually they've been lifted. Um, and that is good and it's very important for quite a lot of jobs in Scotland. Um, uh, so it shows that it, it doesn't need to be you know, all or nothing. You can you can make progress uh, in particular sectors, in particular fields. Actually, um, aerospace is another uh, one in which the um, uh, the restrictions uh, uh, have been reduced. So I hope we will be able to make um, progress towards a trade deal, and it may involve faster progress on particular uh, sectors. Um, but uh, but beyond that, you know, I I think we've got to as I say, we've got to use our freedom. So one of the things in the past was that when we, when we negotiated with other countries in the, in the world, it was as a member state of the EU. They were basically negotiating with the EU. Um, 
And so we haven't had to set out our wares and to, uh, and to negotiate directly. Now we have to do that. I think that's a good opportunity for us. Final comment and, and question really, in, you know, you're in the centre there. You, you, you see things every day, you know, what's going on around the country. Around the, what, what, what does it look like in terms of COVID now? Well, what's your sense of where do you think the country's going? Uh, I mean, the economists have said we're looking at a bump of 6% growth, I think, this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably one of the fastest recoveries we've ever had. So what's your sense? You know, you're, you're there every day. You're getting all this information, information about not only this country, but internationally. So a couple of, couple of things to finish off. Mm. Where do you think we're going as a country now then, post-COVID? What are the sort of the big changes? Um, yeah. And, then, and then how do you think the global trading place will change? Have we changed as people? And, and have countries changed as a result of COVID? So I'm very optimistic about our prospects um, at post-COVID. Um, I chair the Science and Technology Committee in Parliament, and we take evidence most weeks uh, on on COVID from the, the scientists in this country around the world. Uh, the vaccines seem to be effective, and as as we both know, we've rolled them out at an incredible pace across the country, and I think that is going to mean that infection levels, which are falling, will fall further, and we'll be able safely to get back to not not normal in the sense that you know we'll we won't forget this and there've been people have gone through a lot and some people have lost loved ones but we will we'll bounce back uh, it, it seems to me and that is a you know when all said and done you know the the most important thing was that we were able to to develop and deploy a vaccine as soon as it was available and i think we've been uh, we could scarcely have done better uh, on that. And I think that's really important. Uh, and although, you know, your, many of your colleagues and, and friends uh, would have suffered a lot in business terms um, and, you know, personally in terms of their own uh, incomes during the, the pandemic, getting back to you know, the, the, the experience of growth, whether it's 5%, 6% uh, or whatever, that will feel pretty buoyant, pretty optimistic. And yeah, we all know, you know, when everyone's smiling, then it's infectious. And, uh, and I think, you know, if people, people are going back to work, people are spending money again, people are placing orders, people are hiring people, hopefully it's a kind of virtuous circle and we can do really well uh, over the next few years. I, I really hope that. Uh, internationally, now, that's where I think there might be some more, uh, some more challenges. I mean, obviously, we, at the time we're talking, there's an awful situation in India uh, is, you know, is bad and getting worse. You know, very sadly, it's going to be several months probably um, until the level of vaccination that we've been able to get to uh, is going to be achieved in India. And there are many countries in the world uh, like that. So... So I think that we are probably going to do better than than the the world as a whole because we are advantaged in terms of the the vaccines. I think that has two uh, responsibilities. One is that we need to redouble our efforts to uh, to help other countries with our expertise and advice uh, and indeed 
there are, are vaccines to help them get out of it. I also think that in international terms, we've had a difficult few years in which you know, the, the demeanor of the American administration has not been terribly encouraging of free trade and uh, an international cooperation. I think, that, I think that's peaked and actually there will be more of a kind of international, more international agreements and conversations and perhaps you know, not, not always easy conversations, but I think they'll take place. And I hope that we'll be a leader uh, in that because we've got a, a voice. It's, we've always had a strong voice. We're a member of the Security Council of the United Nations. We're one of the biggest economies in the, in the world. But we're, we were constrained by being a member of the EU. We, you know, we, we couldn't always give our own view where it was a collective view of the European Union. Now we can. And I hope that we will use that vigorously. So do you think globalisation, I mean, I mean, a lot of people said during COVID, this is, globalisation is finished. And, and certainly in the previous America first policy, globalisation was finished. But from what you're saying, globalisation is far from finished. Well, the, the COVID pandemic uh, shows you that globalisation is not finished because it's a global disease that started in China and, uh, and hit us for for six and you know it's a metaphor in some ways that you can't in the 21st century think that you can isolate yourself from the rest of the world and are not going to be embroiled in global forces um and it's just impossible i mean there isn't a country in the world as far as i can see that has um uh, however isolated has managed to uh, to Put up the defences to stop COVID coming in, um, and so I think that's the case with globalisation. Because what we mean by globalisation uh, is that you know there'll be companies and businesses that will develop products in one country, perhaps ahead of another, and people in other countries will want those products, and that's that's a good thing. Um, we shouldn't. Uh, I, I don't think we should be concerned about that. In fact, I think we should be confident about it. I think we should be looking, and you know, the Prime Minister uses the slogan Global Britain, we should be looking to exert our trading strengths uh, in that. You know, we, uh, we make fantastic things. We have high reputation for high quality, whether that's in manufactured goods or whether it's in services. We've got a reputation for innovation, uh, for brilliance, for creativity. All of these things, I think the world is going to want more of um, in the next few years. And if you think about some of the, you know, the industries, we talked about satellites earlier on, satellites are bound to expand. Healthcare, life sciences, um, all of the, you know, the work behind the discovery uh, of the, the vaccine, the development of the vaccine, um, uh, genomics, looking at the, uh, the sequencing um, uh, of um, genetic uh, material, all of these things, huge demands for, and we have a leading position uh, in that. So I think we should be looking to, to be on the front foot and to be exporting uh, around the world in a very active uh, and confident way. So Greg, we've been speaking for an hour. Let me just read what 45 minutes. Let me just remind you of what we've covered. Hmm. Uh, we covered devolve, devolvement, in other words, let local people decide. Yep. 
let local knowledge prevail. We've talked about the importance of place. We looked at the industrial strategy and how that's changed and was, in its essence, it's still something we should pursue. Uh, we looked at the importance of manufacturing and we looked at the importance of R&D. Uh, life science, you gave an example. We spoke about skills. Uh, we also spoke about net zero, carbon. Uh, we spoke about how the economy now, whilst it was behind everyone else, Initially, when the virus hit us, we were really struggling as an economy. It's now in front of everybody else because of uh, of the vaccine side. We, we talked about globalization and how now that looks like it will get even more integrated, particularly with the change of leadership and how I think COVID has taught us that maybe if we all as a world work together, we're probably all going to prosper together. Uh, we're very optimistic in terms of the UK's uh, economy, 6% growth, and it's it's changing uh, place on the global trade. Um, and of course, this encapsulates the type of chap you were when we used to know you, which was open, uh, transparent, and very confident. And, 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 and I think that was my experience of working with you there. And, and that's exactly how you've come across. It's been brilliant talking to you, Greg, and, and I hope to catch up with you again soon. But um, it was brilliant those nine years working with you. And, and I wish you the best in everything else you're doing in the heart of government and still placing, from what I can see, the role of business at the top of the tree. 100% Nindra. Listen, I'm really grateful for um, uh, for the chats and for uh, having uh, the opportunity to spend some virtual time uh, together. Uh, the, the work that you and your colleagues uh, did during that time in the Black Country, I think has, uh, I really enjoy, but it's made a big difference to, to people. And I, one of the reasons that I enjoyed coming up to the region uh, such a lot was that there was a real sense of kind of momentum that you know people were thinking that uh, you know better days were were ahead again and and a sense of possibility uh, and optimism uh, and uh, and strength there that um, that I I know very much is uh, is still there so uh, so I hope it won't be very many weeks now before I can uh, I can come come back up and uh, we'll see each other again in, uh, in person but uh, but thank you for everything you did when I said local leadership it can't happen without local leadership uh, you are uh, you were and are uh, one of those uh, local leaders and so uh, it's the other way around I should be thanking you for uh, for what you've done and I think it was a wonderful touch hearing the bell in the background I think that just gives the podcast <laughs> a bit of atmosphere great thanks very much for taking that time and, great and, pleasure. and I look forward to catching with you soon thank you fantastic look forward to that